Jesus and his disciples sat down at a table in the middle of a really crazy, unusual week that was about to get crazier and even more unusual. You see, when they went into Jerusalem, as Jesus rode in on the donkey, things were already different. The people were lining the streets and they were praising him. They were singing Hosanna. They believed that he was coming in to be the Messiah that was promised. But then almost immediately, things started to go downhill. Jesus had a conflict in the temple where he drove out the money changers who were trying to take advantage of people who were coming to worship God during that Passover week. As he was teaching, he also started to have conflict with some of the religious leaders and the things that they were teaching, and the tension was really starting to rise to the point where everyone could feel it. And on top of that, even before they got there, Jesus had been predicting that when they went to Jerusalem that he was going to be killed. And so this was a really tense time for the disciples and for Jesus. And so it had to be a really welcomed relief when they sat down at the table to take the Passover meal because it brought with it a little sense of familiarity. They were able to sit down and eat a meal that they ate every single year. A meal that their parents had eaten every single year and their parents before them and generation after generation of their ancestors had eaten all the way since the time when the original Passover happened. And so there was comfort in that familiarity of eating the same foods and drinking the same drink and going through the same ritual and praying the same prayers and even singing the same songs. Or more specifically, singing the same psalms. And so as Jesus and his disciples sat down to go through this meal that had happened so many times before, what were the songs that they sang? What were the songs that the people of Israel had been singing for generations before Jesus and his disciples sat down? They're probably singing from Psalm 113 to 118, or as they're often called, the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And that word Hallel simply means praise. And the reason that they're called Egyptian Hallel Psalms is because these are psalms written with the Passover in mind. They were written with the Exodus in mind. They're all psalms that harken back to the time when God's people were in captivity and enslaved in Egypt, and God, through Moses, rescued them out and brought them into the promised land. And so through all of these generations, when success would come and then fall, when tribulation and trials would come up and disappear, when exile happened in the life of Israel, they would sing these psalms and it would remind them that they serve and they worship a God who saves. And these psalms were designed to praise the God who brings redemption and restoration to his people. And now after all these years, as we look back on these on this side of Jesus, we see these psalms even more deeply. Because when Jesus sat down for what was supposed to be a very normal traditional meal with that Passover meal, or what we now call the Last Supper, Jesus took the traditions and the meanings of the Passover, as we talk about every time we take communion, and he changed them. Because he said, this meal that you used to remember the the Passover, when you remembered God taking the people out of Egypt, now when you eat this bread, you're going to remember me and my body which is broken for you. And every time you drink this cup, you're going to remember my blood that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. And when Jesus changed the meaning of the Passover, he also drastically impacted the meaning of these psalms as well. 
Because not only do they now look back to the Passover and to God rescuing the people at the Exodus, but now they put the viewer's mind forward at the work of Christ and the salvation that Jesus brought through His death and His resurrection. And these Psalms would have certainly been ingrained in the hearts and in the minds and the lives and the festivals and the feasts of the ancient worshipers of Israel. And the same should be true for us as well. These should be psalms that we know and that we sing and that we pray through and that we use in the life of our worship. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to get really familiar with these psalms. We're going to look at one psalm per day over the next several weeks and go from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 and see how not only were they true for ancient Israel, but they're true for us as well. And we're going to start with Psalm 113, which is a psalm that calls us to worship a God who is bigger than we could imagine and closer than we could ever dream. And if you were here for any part of the the Jonah sermon series that we just came out of, this concept should be kind of familiar. Because we saw Jonah, and all through his story, God being so big that he could command over nature, but also so close and so intimate that he could speak with Jonah directly. And so we saw that in narrative form in the book of Jonah, and now we're going to see it and, and be instructed on how we should use that in the life of our worship. And when we do these psalms, because they were designed to be used in public worship and public liturgy, instead of me just reading this passage of Scripture, I'm going to ask you guys to help me out. And so on the screen, this passage is going to be behind me, and we're going to read it like we do our responsive readings. The plain text I'll read alone, and the bold underlined text we'll all read together. And so you guys help me read this passage this morning. From Psalm 113, 1-9. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks down, far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Great job, guys. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we do praise you. And as we read these passages of Scripture, God, remind us of their context, not simply in the life of Israel, but in the big story of how you are saving the world, of how you are redeeming your people, of the salvation that you brought through Christ that you'll one day finish when he comes again to make all things right and all things new. Teach us to be good worshipers who worship you for who you are and for what you've done, God, and help us to find in that identity as worshipers something beautiful and amazing because we're reminded that we are your children. And so, Father, speak through your word this morning. And may we return this word right back to you as praise. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This passage begins with a call to worshipers. And we've talked before about the importance of the call to worship in the life of our church. 
And if you come on Sunday mornings, there's various stages of things that happen. So if you come at nine o'clock, there's usually people buzzing around vacuuming and cleaning bathrooms and getting breakfast set up and making coffee and a lot of just little worker bees doing incredible, awesome worker bee things. And then at about 9.45, as Lydia and the band finishes practicing and, and all the people on the setup team finish all their work, at 9.45, breakfast starts. And so you can come in, you can grab some coffee if that's your thing. It shouldn't be because it's gross, but you can grab some coffee if you'd like to. You can grab some of the breakfast that somebody's volunteered to bring. People eat, people talk, you catch up on your week, you find your seat, you get settled in, and everything is kind of relaxed and open. And then at, we'll call it 10.30, usually 10.30, sometimes 10.32, but most of the time 10.30, Lydia starts to play, the recorded music starts to come down, and some words pop up on the screen. And it's our call to worship. Usually a passage of scripture that lets us know that things are about to change, that we're calling corporate worship into action, that we're here for a purpose and for a reason, and everything else around our lives is going to stop for this hour, hour and a half, so that we can worship God. And that's what happens here at the beginning of Psalm chapter 113. It's a call to worship. These psalms, again, were designed to be used in public corporate worship, whether it was at a feast or a festival or at some time, and a priest would lead these psalms. And so it would begin with this call for the people of God to worship God. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And Charles Spurgeon talks about how this would have looked in in the life of the liturgy or in the life of the worship of the people of Israel, and it would have had a very repetitious nature to it. And so the priest would read these verses, and in between the priest reading the verses, the people would call something back. And so the priest would read the first line, he would say, praise the Lord, and then the people would respond, hallelujah, or very specifically, praise the Lord. And the priest would continue, praise, O servants of the Lord. And the people would call back, praise the Lord. And then finally, the priest would say, praise the name of the Lord. And one more time, the people would respond, praise the Lord. And it was a reminder that worshiping God is not an individual effort, but something that we do corporately. That they weren't there to be individual worshipers of God, but to be the corporate people of God, celebrating the same, the one true God who reigns and serves. And so they would sing these praises out loud to God, declaring the name of the Lord worthy to be praised. And Spurgeon even continues to talk about how this three-part repetition, because repetition is so important in the life of the Psalms, but here this idea is repeated three times over, and Spurgeon saw some insight into that. He says, the name of Jehovah, or God, is thrice used in this verse. And I'd just like to interject here. We don't use the word thrice enough. That is a very beautiful word that no one ever says. And I would like to start using it more because Charles Spurgeon made me like it. And he says, the name of Jehovah is thrice used in this verse. And may, by us who understand the doctrine of the Trinity and unity, be regarded as a thinly veiled allusion to that holy mystery. He says this passage declares to let Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all be praised as one, only living and true God. And the people would call back three times, praise the Lord. And so we see the fullness of God revealed here in this passage and the people responding to the call to be his worshipers. And in this opening declaration, there are two parties that identified. The first and the most important is obviously the object of worship here. He says, praise the Lord. Praise servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And so the Lord God, Jehovah, He is the object of worship. He's the object of affection. He's the object of praise here. 
But then the psalmist also recognizes the worshipers. And in this passage, he calls them the servants of the Lord. And right away, this phrase changes something about the worship and the worshipers. The posture and the position of the worshipers are drastically changed by the fact that they are identified as servants of God. And that almost sounds like harsh language or abrupt language. And there's so many different phrases that the psalmist could have used there that would have been just as true. He could have called them worshipers of the Lord or children of the Lord, but he distinctly calls the people who are gathered to worship their servants of the Lord. And so we recognize that there is something different about worship. There's something different about praise. When God is being praised, he's being lifted up. And this isn't a peer-to-peer kind of relationship, but these are servants worshiping the master. And you can even see how that works in the life of worship, because if you watch the posture of people who are worshiping, that posture reflects servanthood. People may kneel to worship. People may bow their heads and close their eyes or fold their hands as an act of humility. Even down to lifting your hands while you sing is this act of submission and recognizing our dependency on God. And so the whole structure of worship is completely changed by the fact that the worshipers are called servants of the Lord. But it also changes the kind of worshipers that these people are. Because it says, praise, O servants of the Lord. Not a Lord, not any Lord. Not servants of the gods, not servants or just worshipers in general, but these people were called to be worshipers of the one true God. And one of the things that we see in Scripture, but not just in Scripture, but in every aspect of our life, is that people are worshipers. There's something ingrained deep down inside all of us, and we have a desire to worship something. Sometimes it's a deity, sometimes it's it's literal idolatry, sometimes it's our job, sometimes it's our family, sometimes it's celebrity, sometimes it's money or power or wealth. There are a lot of different things that we can make gods in our lives, but we know that we are programmed deep down inside to worship or venerate or adore something. But this was a call not just to be worshipers, but for the servants of the Lord to worship him alone. This is a call to a monotheistic, exclusive kind of worship of this God. The psalmist is calling the people of Israel to be a different kind of worshipers who worship with a fixed affection on the one true God and to praise his name and to praise his name alone. But when we read that, then we start to figure out, well, what is worship really at all? Is this some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome where there's this one God and he's just making us worship him because that's what he wants? Is there any kind of benefit to the worshiper at all because that's how our minds tend to think? Or is this just God being selfish? Is this just God needing to have his ego fixed? But D.A. Carson answers that question well. He says there's no insecurity in this God. After all, he is the God of aseity. He has no needs. In eternity past, the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, and they were in perfect contentment. God is not demanding that we love Him so that we can meet the needs of His psychological profile for the weak. His focus on Himself is not only because He is God, but because out of love, He knows that that is what we need. That is what we must see. That this is the point to which our adoration must come. And if it does not, we wallow in idolatry again and again and again. 
this phrase reminds the people as they're called servants of God that not only does God belong to them as their God and as the object of their affection and the object of their praise, but they also belong to God and they're loved. And the idea of belonging to God is an incredibly important thing for these people because they know who God is. And they certainly knew what it was like to be in oppression under a harsh master, but they knew that this master that they serve, the person to, or the being to which they are servants, is a good and holy and righteous God. And he's a loving and merciful God. We saw that in the book of Jonah, where Jonah said that he knew that God was a compassionate God with a steadfast love who was slow to anger and quick to relent from disaster, that he is a compassionate and merciful God and a compassionate and merciful master. And so for these people to be called servants of God is an incredibly awesome gift. Their identity as worshipers of God, as servants of God, reminded them that they were children of God that they belong to God and that his love and that his affection, that steadfast love that he had that had no end or no limitations belong to them. And that new identity as worshipers or as servants of God resulted in praise. Charles Spurgeon, again, in this passage, talks about this idea of being a servant of God. He says, while they were slaves of Pharaoh, the Israelites uttered groans and sighs by reason of their hard bondage. But now that they had become servants of the Lord, they were to express themselves in songs of joy. His service is perfect freedom. And those who enter into it discover in that service a thousand reasons for adoration. They are sure to praise God who serve Him best. Indeed, service is praise. See, Spurgeon points out that these people, they remembered. They remembered the hardships that their ancestors were under. These psalms were sung during the Babylonian Assyrian exile when they knew what it was like to live under harsh masters. And so he says that these these ancient Israelites, when they were in Egypt, they would offer up these groans and sighs because their labor and their service was difficult because they were serving under a difficult master. But now that they were under God, We know that Jesus said that his yoke is is easy and his burden is light. And because God is who he is for all eternity, that the burden that God gives is, is not difficult, but it's easy and it's light and it's full of grace and mercy. And so being able to contrast the hardship of Pharaoh with the goodness of God helped the people to realize as they served that their service was in fact actually freedom. That they were able to live the way that they were designed to live and to be who they were created to be and that God wanted that for them and was leading them to that place. And so the more that they served God, the more they realized how loving and kind and compassionate God was. And the more they realized how much God loved them, they began to love God even more. And so that natural flow took that service that they were offering up to God and turned it into praise because the more they served, the more they realized how much they were loved and how much they could love God. And as Spurgeon said, the service resulted in a thousand reasons for adoration because they realized that they were They were the children of God. They were the servants of God that he loved them and that he worked not only for his glory, but also for their good. And that identity of servants of God belongs to those who are in Christ today. If you trust in Jesus for salvation, then that's the same identity that we have as well. Writers of the New Testament like James and Paul would call themselves bond servants or slaves to Christ. 
Paul says that we're set free when we enter into this relationship with Christ. We're set free from our guilt. We're set free from shame. We're set free from sin and even the law so that we can become slaves to righteousness, so that we can be servants of God. But Jesus even expanded that concept more in John 15, verse 14. He said, you're my friends if you do what I command you or if you serve me. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then in verse 17, he talks about what it means to serve him. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That because of Christ and His work on the cross, that we go from being strangers to children of God, that as servants of God, we belong in God's house and He treats us as sons and daughters and friends. And when we look at this opening phrase of Psalm 113, we see that it's not just a call to worship for ancient Israel, but for all of God's people who have been saved by His grace to praise Him because He is our God and we are His people. And so we have this call to worshipers to praise God in all that we do in every way that we can. And now the psalmist moves to the object of worship. And in verse 3 and 4, the psalmist tells us that we're supposed to worship the eternal and the infinite God. And that nature, that part of God, his eternal existence, his infinite existence is a really difficult thing to grasp. Because we know that everything has a start and everything has an end. We know that you're born and then you die. We have bookends on how this all works. And so to imagine an eternally existing deity is a really difficult thing to do. To think about God or anything having no end is incredibly hard. But then when we start to think about the fact that God had no beginning, that he was eternally present, that he is the uncreated creator, that's one of those things that that gives you some kind of spiritual brain freeze because it's hard to process and it's hard to grasp. But it's really important and a really crucial part of who God is and part of his nature. And it instructs us on how we should worship God. Verse 2 and 3 says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And so as soon as the psalmist is done with this call to worshipers, he gives them the parameters and the limitations to their worship. And he says, from this time forward, from this exact moment in history, and then forevermore, that's when you're supposed to praise God. That's when the name of the Lord is supposed to be blessed. There is no ending to this. And that's because our worship is supposed to reflect the character and the nature of the God that we worship. And so if God is eternal and if God never changes, then our worship in the same way should be eternal and should never change. It should be constant and continuing. This passage of scripture isn't a call to a temporary service, but to a lifelong passion of exalting and worshiping God. On Sunday mornings, it can be easy to feel like our service has a beginning and an end because there's a time when we come in here and then there's a time that we leave. We have a call to worship at the beginning and we have a benediction at the end. And so it can feel like that benediction is closing the book on our worship. But the reality is that call to worship is supposed to be like coal in the fire of a steam engine that week after week just keeps us moving in the right direction. And that benediction doesn't end our worship, but it sends us out, out of this building to go be worshipers of God everywhere that we go. 
And that's the same calling that the people of Israel had when this was called down over them. From this point, right now, when we're praying and singing these psalms, for the rest of eternity, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And because you're worshipers of God, it's your responsibility to do that. But I love how it continues, because it says, for this time forth and forevermore. And then he says in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And the psalmist used this repetition to help us understand how that's supposed to look. Because when you think about from this time forth and forevermore, that's a really big picture kind of thing. Eternity is a really hard thing for us to grasp. And so we get, okay, I know how to start worshiping God, but now how do I do that forevermore? Forevermore is really big and it's really broad and it seems really vague. And so how do I worship God for all of eternity? And the psalmist gives us that answer. He says that we do it from the rising of the sun to its setting. We take eternity one day at a time. And so instead of thinking about it as this big umbrella thing, we realize that we wake up in the morning, that the rising of the sun starts the day of worship and the setting of the sun finishes it from the time that we wake up to the time we lay our head down. That's when we're called to be worshipers and honorers of God. And so we just are able to take this eternity one step, one moment, even one breath at a time. And so we have the big forevermore part, but also we have this continuous nature of our worship to be worshipers of God every single day. And scripture tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. And if God's mercies are new every morning, shouldn't our desire to praise him be as well? Every moment that God is on his throne. Every day that God is God, he's worthy to be praised. And that was the call of the people in ancient Israel. And that's our call today as well. We have the responsibility as we hear this passage of scripture this morning to be worshipers of God now and forevermore. And to be actively aware of that call every single day. And so I want to challenge you and myself as we read this passage of scripture that when you wake up tomorrow, let this passage of scripture be on your heart and on your mind. That from the rising of the sun to its setting, that the name of the Lord is to be praised, and it's our responsibility to do that. And so when your alarm goes off tomorrow, whatever time of day that might be, when your head rises up from the pillow, let your first thought be, how am I going to praise God today? How am I going to worship God today? Because he is still God and he is still good and he is still holy and gracious and merciful and his salvation is new for me every single morning. His mercy is new for me every single morning. And so how am I going to reflect that in my day, all day until I go to sleep? And let's take forevermore one day at a time. So we worship the eternal and the infinite God. And then the psalmist tells us that we're also called to worship the transcendent God. Verse 4 through 6 says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? And if you really think about it, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to worship a God who isn't these things. Right? If God didn't sit high above the heavens, if he didn't sit over the nations, if he didn't look far down on the heavens and the earth, would he really be a God that's worthy of worship? Would somebody who's just a little better than us or a little bigger than us or a little stronger than us really be worthy of our undying, unadulterated affection and worship and praise? He wouldn't be. 
this passage of Scripture here is a declaration of God's worthiness to be worshipped. It's the psalmist telling us why God is worthy to be praised now and forevermore from the rising of the sun to its setting. That we're called to be servants of the Lord who worship the Lord. All of these things are the resume of God that shows us why he's worthy of such a fixed affection. It begins by saying the Lord is high above all nations. And that's not just talking about the geographics of the countries that we live in, but the power structures of the world. That God sits high above every president and every king and every queen and every governing body and every everything that ever has felt like they have any authority or power at all. God is bigger than they are. God is stronger than they are. He looks far down on those things and he holds their authority in the palm of his hand. And so if we subject ourselves to human earthly authority, how much more so should we subject ourselves and then also worship the God who sits so far above those institutions? says that his glory is above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? All the things in our world and our universe that look so big and so awesome, the things that cause our jaws to drop and our eyes to get a little bit bigger, the things that we think are good and glorious and awesome, his glory stretches high above those high above the stars in the sky, high above the infinite stretches of the universe. God is above and beyond all of those things. And so if those are glorious and wonderful, how much more glorious and wonderful is the God who again holds them in the palm of His hand, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. You feel really big if you've ever been on top of, of a very large building, you feel really big when the people who you know should be your size look like ants. Even from the distance I am to you guys, I feel like I'm bigger than you. I can take my thumb, I can put it over Drew's head, and now Drew has a thumb head. And it's weird and it's funny, but my thumb is bigger than Drew, and so I can feel very big. That distance creates that feeling of size. And when you look down from a mountain or from a tall building, you feel like you could just pick a group of people up in the palm of your hands. But it's just a feeling. We're not any bigger. We're just far off. But God is so big. And His expanse is so far that even though, as we're about to talk about in a minute, that God is closer than we could ever dream or understand, even though He is that close to us, He is so big and so awesome that He still looks far down on us. God is big in a way that we couldn't fathom, but the psalmist here paints a picture to the best of their ability to give us a glimpse of why God is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And we have to ask ourselves the question, not only do I ask myself, is my worship continuous for God? Do I praise God like he is a God who always is God and always will be God and every morning he sits on his throne? But also, do I worship and do I praise this God? A God who is this kind of big, this kind of mysterious, this kind of transcendent and different from me. Does my worship celebrate a God who is bigger than I could ever possibly fathom or even understand? And I think on a day-to-day basis, if I'm going to answer the question honestly, it's no. Even though I knew I was going to preach this exact line this morning, when I was singing about the God who is worthy to be praised from the rising sun just a few minutes ago, I'm not sure that the size and the scope and the magnitude of God was really on my heart and on my mind. 
We need to be people who worship and praise God for who he is. And who he is is bigger than we could possibly comprehend. And so when we sing songs, when we pray prayers, when we go out and talk about God, our overwhelming adoration and awe of who God is and the glory that we give him should match the size to which he actually exists. And so not only do we have to worship God continuously, but we have to worship God with hearts that are overwhelmed by the magnitude and the size of the God that we worship. So we worship this God who's eternal and infinite. We worship a God who is transcendent. And then we also worship a God who is intimate and imminent. A God who is close and a God who is near. If God were only big, and God were only far off, would he be worthy of worship? He would certainly be worthy of adoration. He would certainly be worthy of our awe, much like the sun is, much like the expanse of the universe is. And so if God was just another mechanism in that who looks far down away from us but never comes near, if he's the God of deism that sets himself far away from us and is just this divine clockmaker who puts everything into motion and then sets it spinning, would he be worthy of our affection? Would he be worthy of our worship? I heard an interview with an, an Islamic comic book artist and she was talking about that relationship with God. And she talked about one of the things that, that made Islam different from Christianity is the personal nature of Christianity. She said, we don't believe that our God is close, our intimate, or that has a personal relationship. And it changed the way not only that she talked about God, but the way that she thought about worship. But in the life of a Christian, we don't have a God who is simply far off and distant, but a God who is closer than we could ever imagine. In verse 7 through 9, it illustrates that by saying that he raises the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Here we see that God is imminent, that he is here with us, that he is actively involved in everything that takes place in our lives. We see that he is close to us in a very intimate sort of way. That he's not just here, that he's not just present, that we're not just pantheist in the midst of God, but that God is here with us and that he is working in everything that happens in our lives. In this passage of scripture, we get to witness the incredible, gentle touch of a powerful God. It says that he takes the, the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. This is a God who meets people where they are, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their brokenness. It says that he gives hope uh, to a barren woman, that he makes her the joyous mother of children, that this is a very personal thing. That even life growing inside a womb is not something that's simply biological, but something that is spiritual and something that's divinely ordained, that God, as the psalmist says, knits us together in our mother's womb. That he meets people at their lowest and raises them up with his own hands. Tim Keller says that God's greatness is seen in his regard to the ungreat. 
yes, God is great because he's big and because he's more than we could ever imagine and more than we could ever understand or fathom. He's big because he's above all principalities and all rulers and all governments. He's big because he holds the universe in the palm of his hand and he's great because all of those things are true. But the true expression of God's greatness comes that he is that big and that awesome and that holy and yet he is still so close that he lifts people from their brokenness and he meets us where we are. We find in this passage of Scripture a God who sits high above the heavens but also kneels in the dust with the poor and the needy and makes them sit with princes. That the same God who spoke life to galaxies and life to the universe also meets a woman in her brokenness and in her pain of being barren and brings life and joy into her heart. The big God who is worthy of our awe is also a God who is near enough and close enough to receive and to give affection. And not only did this change the way the people of Israel and, and of course ourselves worshipped, but again it changes our identity as worshippers. Not just because we're children of God, not just because He's close, not just because He's near and He loves us individually and He, he gives His mercy to us directly, not from a far off distance. But it also changes who we are as corporate worshipers. In the Confession of Sin every week, Drew tells us about the, the, hum, the humbling nature of the confession of sin, but also the equalizing nature of the confession of sin. That we come in here all as sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God, and that there's no one better and no one worse when it comes to God's economy. And not only is that true because we're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, but it's also true because of this part of God's character. That he meets the poor and the broken and the dust and the ashes and he lifts them up to sit with princes. To the princes of his people. See, we find in this passage of Scripture that at God's table, the poor and the broken sit with the princes and we're all invited to worship God no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from. There is no one better, no one worse, no one more worthy to worship God and no one less worthy to worship God because He's so big, He doesn't care about our riches or wealth, but because He's so near, He knows our brokenness and He loves us anyway. And so we have this call at the end of the passage to praise the Lord. And it's this incredible blanket call. And Alan, if you could pull up the first verse of Rising Sun, again, that first slide. Because I think it does such a good job of illustrating what that looks like, that call to the people of God to worship God. It says, praise Him, all you sinners. Sing, O oh, sing, you weary. Praise Him, all you children of God. And that's the same heart of this final praise the Lord that ties in to praise the servants of the Lord is this reminder that whether you're a prince or a pauper, whether you feel like you're the most worthy person in the world to worship God or you're the least worthy person to worship God, none of that means anything because in God's economy, we all find ourselves at the exact same place. And this call to worshipers is a call to all worshipers, to anyone who would come, to anyone who would worship God, you sinners, you weary, all of you children of God, praise God. God, all you people, all the time, praise the Lord. Praise the God who sits high above all nations and the heavens and the earth and who also comforts the broken every minute of every day. Our call is to praise Him no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from or what we've done. Because these Psalms, they're our Hallel as well. These Psalms are our praise 
as well. Jesus stepped in and he changed the Passover to remind us of God's ultimate salvation when Christ was the better Moses who offered himself as a sacrifice. Tim Keller said that in Jesus, God proved to be great enough to become small himself. That the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand in order to save us stepped into time and space. He put on flesh and blood in the person of Christ and then not only became the better Moses, but became the better sacrifice. He not only took us on the path to salvation, but he became the path to salvation himself by offering himself on the cross and on the third day raising again to bring the hope of new life and an eternal relationship with God for anyone who would believe. And we call that the gospel. And that's the reason why we're able to sing these songs because we have a God who saves his people. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ before for salvation, if you've never been through the waters of baptism, then I want to encourage you to talk with either me or Pastor Adam or Pastor David after the service about what it means to trust in Christ and what that picture of baptism is. And know that this praise, this this worship of God that comes out of being children saved by God can be yours as well. And if you're here and you've trusted in Christ, remember the gospel. Remember that this psalm that once pointed us back towards the Passover when God loved his people so much that he took them out of harsh oppression to Pharaoh and brought them to the promised land now reminds us that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son to come in and take us from oppression, not under a ruler, not under a dictatorship, but under our own sin. That we were enslaved to sin and bondage and the guilt and the shame that comes with us. But Jesus loved us so much that he stretched out his arms and died to take on that shame and take on that guilt himself. And then through his resurrection, give us the hope that we could be made new and be made whole. And to realize that that is reason to praise God. That's a reason to sing and to know these psalms and to praise the Lord now and forevermore. And so let's be those kind of worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth, from the rising of the setting sun, no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, let's praise the Lord. Let's pray.